As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the first letter of John. We'll be in 1 John in chapter 2 this morning. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, you've told us that whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. So, Lord, would you make that true of us? Would you grant us your eternal life? Strengthen belief in us as we hear your word. Speak to us everlasting truth. And as we hear it and receive it, and believe it by your Holy Spirit, would you cause us to rest in you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is 1 John in chapter 2. We have this morning just a couple of verses. verses. That's not a misprint, so it'll be just a short read here. But 1 John chapter 2 We'll begin in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God. Now, today we're going to take up a particular doctrine of God. Uh, which I'll name in just a moment. But first, uh, let me remind us that John, the author here, in the verses right before this, has been encouraging us to confess our sin. And now, he says in these very next sentences that we've just read, he says he's writing so that we won't sin. So, well, which is it? It's both. You know, on one hand, that we are to speak the sin that is already in us. That we're to own it, to name it, to confess the truth of it. And on the other hand, we want to shun the sin that's in it, to, re- to reject it, to turn away from it, to be, to be cleansed from it. Those things are not in contradiction. They are both true John then speaks both of these truths simultaneously to help us avoid opposite errors in regard to our sin. That is, that we don't want to be too hard on our sin so that we become anxious and that we'll say everything is hopeless. But on the flip side, we don't want to be too soft on sin so that we become apathetic and say that sin is no big deal. You know, between anxiety and apathy, we often end up pendulum swinging. 
You know, if you're to take a look at yourself in your own heart, you probably tend to fall more toward one of those or the other, more toward anxiety or more toward apathy. But, but the scripture is, is, is moving away from both and holding these tensions together. The word of God is clear. We do not want to continue in sin. But what happens when we do sin? And this is where we're given two important doctrines about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is our advocate. He mentions that in verse 1, Jesus is our advocate. We'll save that and take that up next week, Lord willing. But today, we're going to take up the second of these doctrines, that Jesus is our propitiation. It's in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's what we're after today, propitiation. Now, some people, maybe most people, hear the word propitiation and have no idea what on earth to do with something like that. It's a long word and a bit of a tongue twister. Twi- See, I knew. Oh, just saying, t- I thought I would get caught up in propitiation, but I got up sa- saying tongue twister. It gets stuck in our mouths. It, it's a word that sounds very technical and very theological, like you need to put on different clothes to say it somehow. And it, it maybe adds to some confusion that some English translations of the Bible don't even use this word at all. Instead of propitiation, some translations have the phrase atoning sacrifice there instead. So uh, these things together might lead some of us to think that this word or this idea is just for professional Christians. And something that pastors and, and professors and theologians talk about. And let me just pop that balloon right up, right up front, okay? Some doctrines, it's true, some doctrines have less of an impact on us. But we all need to know what propitiation is. There's one writer, J.I. Packer, if you're familiar with his name, one writer said, an understanding of salvation without propitiation is incomplete. It's even misleading, he said. So if we want to understand salvation, we need to understand what propitiation is. Now, As I say that, I want again to keep us from falling off the opposite cliffs of either anxiety or apathy. So we talk about how important propitiation is, and some people instantly go to anxiety. Oh no, I have never even heard or noticed this word before. What if I don't understand it? What if I don't get it? What if I have no idea what he's saying? I'm not even sure if I can pronounce it. Am I still saved from my sin if I don't know it? And if that's you, let me remind you that the key to eternal life, both now and at the pearly gates, that key is not whether you can pass a quiz of Christian doctrines. There's not going to be an essay when you die where you have to write out short answer questions like define propitiation. The key is not that. The key to eternal life is Jesus. 
to know Jesus, to believe on Jesus, to love Jesus. Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus himself is the gate. It was Jesus who told the thief on the cross, hey, today you'll see me in paradise. And that's not because that thief knew all the right technical answers, but because that thief put his faith and trust in Jesus, and that was enough. So we should rest easy on this, but we also don't want to get sleepy about it either. Because we don't want anxiety, but we also don't want apathy. The kind of thing that says, you know, who really cares about doctrines? Those things are stuffy and stale. You know, and you could be saved by Jesus and be in heaven without him, you know? So I'm going to just do my best to follow God. If that's you, let me remind you that following God involves doing and listening to what God says. You know, what we've just read here is from God. God has given us these doctrines. It's not just a text from the Apostle John, although he is the writer. This is the word of God. So to ignore something like this is like trying to drive a car without knowing how a car works. You might be able to get in the driver's seat and figure out the key and press the button to go. You might be able to get the car to start. You might even be able to drive it for a while. But if you don't know how that car works, there's a decent chance you're going to get in a wreck. And you're, you may even hurt yourself or others in the process. So let's not kid ourselves on this. Do not try to drive the car of the Christian life without some knowledge of propitiation. We need to carry a proper seriousness in our doctrines so that we're neither anxious nor apathetic, but we, we're anchored that we have truth through every storm and sea. Now, now that I hope I've given us some groundwork about why this matters, what is this thing? What is propitiation? For such a, a, a long word, it's not a terribly complex idea. The simplest way to put propitiation is this. If you're a note taker, here you go. Here's the, here, you don't have to take notes, that's fine, you can just listen. But if you like to take notes, here you go. The simplest way to put propitiation is in two words. It's just this. Propitiation is averted anger. Averted anger. If we want to round it out a little bit more, put a little more understanding, fuller understanding of it, one writer said this, and I cannot do better than he has, has done. He said, propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath by God's love through God's gift. The appeasement of God's wrath by God's love through God's gift. So in saying that, even if we're maybe intimidated by the technical word propitiation, the components of it are easy enough to grasp. We at least know or recognize what these things are. Propitiation is really about God's wrath and God's love. God's wrath and God's love. Now, as I say that, I know that some people, uh, even many Christians, 
are sometimes hesitant to say that God has wrath. But if we say that, if we say that God does not have wrath, we would not be a faithful listener of the Bible. You don't have to read long in the scriptures to find instances where God gets angry, really angry even. We can see God's wrath against the corruption in Sodom and Gomorrah when he rains down sulfur. We see his wrath against the grumbling and complaining of the Israelites in the wilderness. We see his wrath against Aaron, who fashioned the idol of the golden calf. We see his wrath against Achan, the guy who lied and stole from the plunder of Jericho. We see God's wrath against things like profaning the Sabbath and demanding a king and robbing the poor. Even into the New Testament, the message of John the Baptist was flee from the wrath to come. And that wrath is eventually going to be consummated by Jesus when Jesus returns with fire in his eyes and a sword from his mouth and he comes to crush his enemies like grapes in the winepress of the fury of God. Some will even taste the eternal wrath of God that burns forever in the lake of fire. God's wrath may be an inconvenient thing to us, but it is undeniably evident throughout the scriptures. I don't want to give the impression that God's always wrathful at every turn. Every door we open, we find an angry God. You know, given the state of the world as we see it, that would be no surprise if he were, but he's not angry all the time against everything. We see God both in wrath and in his mercy, but we should not pretend as if God has no wrath at all. A God without wrath is not a God of the Bible. A God without wrath is only an idol, an invention of our own imaginations to please ourselves. Which means that God isn't Mr. Rogers. God's wrath rumbles. And every time God executes his wrath, he always has wrath against sin. All sin is darkness. It is evil. It is wickedness. Sin poisons all of society. It ravages all of nature. It, it turns glory into groaning. It mutilates the goodness in the world that God made and shared and cares for. God is right to be angry over the sin that crushes his creation. Something would be terribly wrong if God weren't angry about that. So it would be wrong to say that God has no wrath. But while some people are hesitant or uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath, there are others who make the opposite error and become almost too comfortable with wrath. 
For some people, there's almost a perverse sort of embrace of wrath. We see this played out in the culture that we live in, this culture of justifiable outrage, where rage is often framed as something that's not just normal, the rage is virtuous. So people rally around causes, perhaps even good and righteous causes, but rally around causes full of wrath to see who can yell the loudest and amass the biggest mob. And then anger becomes a weapon to intimidate, to threaten, to terrorize in ways that are wildly out of control and even dangerous. And, and, and we convince ourselves that as long as we're doing it for a good cause, we can call it good. We know anger, even wrath, can be good. It is in God. But in us, it's usually not. It's usually mixed into a yucky cocktail of sin. A good way to test whether our anger is good or not is by checking the level of sadism or enjoyment that our anger brings us. It's a good test to see if our anger is good. But check the level of sadism or enjoyment. So so when we experience anger, we might ask ourselves, does this give me pleasure to express this anger? Or do I revel in the fantasy of raking someone over the coals? Or does it bring me a, a sense of relief or release to pour out my anger? Do I get a, a, perhaps a rush of power or maybe a smug satisfaction out of it? In essence, the test is really, does my wrath make me feel good? If it does, it's sin and it's wicked. Outrage ceases to be justifiable if it is mixed with malice, with narcissism, with volatility and vindictiveness and pettiness and pride, really anything gleeful about it. None of that is ever, ever, ever the sort of wrath that we see from God. God's wrath is always right. But God's wrath is never pleasurable for him. So we should be cautious if our wrath brings us pleasure. We should note here as we talk about wrath or look at how it's played out in propitiation, we'd see that God's wrath against sin is fitting, but still fitting, but God has also established means by which the wrath may be removed. 
Remember, propitiation is about his anger averted, steered away, turned away from, taken away. He's provided place to remove it. And, and we should also notice that that removal of wrath isn't unique to God, to have some sort of pathway to, to turn from our anger. For us, we usually have means to avert our own anger too. So let me give you an example. If I were angry at you because you did something bad, let's say uh, kicking my shins, not while playing soccer. We've had soccer weekend. You just decide for some strange reason that it's time to kick the pastor's shins. And, so, and, and that makes me angry, right? I think that's a fitting response. Now, what would be the way that you, shin kicker, could avert my anger towards you? The best way is probably to stop it. To stop kicking my shins. Please uh, stop doing that if you are doing that. You know, and if you don't stop, then I'm going to dole out a punishment of wrath toward you, that whatever it is that I see fitting, or else I'm going to have to get rid of you or remove you from my presence altogether. That's a very common, normal thing. Not all of that is even bad. We, we hear that same sort of approach in many ancient, even modern religions. The gods say, you did something bad, now I'm mad, and so you better get your act together to fix it, or else you will have to pay the price of my wrath. And sometimes the gods even uh, demand particular bribes or rituals that come along with that. You know, you got to pound your chest and yell out really loud, or, or cut your flesh, or, or throw a virgin into a volcano, which, I, yeah, that's a whole different discussion. Okay, but, but whatever it is that we do, then if you do all of that in just the right way, then the god's anger will be appeased, at least until the next offense. And some people outside of Christian circles, or maybe inside, can say, wait, that sounds exactly like, minus the virgin and the volcano part, exactly like the God of the Bible. I mean, didn't God demand blood sacrifices for animals? Isn't that the way that the anger would be averted? How is that any different? In some ways, it's the same. In important ways, it is different. In the Bible, these Old Testament atoning sacrifices of animals that were used to avert God's anger were not just to appease God. They were also pointers toward a greater reality. They were set up by God as a sort of prelude, a foreshadow of the ultimate propitiation for anger, which is Jesus. And that's what John's talking about here in verse 2. He writes, he, Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation isn't just a doctrine or a concept, it's a person. Jesus is the aversion of anger. 
So Jesus, our propitiation, is different from other religions and other mythologies. And once the, the, the Jesus is the propitiation once for all time. We don't have to remove the anger again and again and again. God's anger is averted by the blood of Jesus forever. But more importantly, Christ's propitiation doesn't come from anything outside of God. It comes from something within God himself. Here's the difference. If I lost you there, hopefully I'll catch you here. Here's the difference. Whereas other gods might say, you did something bad, now I'm mad, so you need to make propitiation. Our God says, you did something bad, now I'm mad, but I will be the one to make propitiation. The means to remove his wrath is not from us. It's from him. And that's where we see God's wrath meet God's love. We've said that propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath, but how? The appeasement of God's wrath by God's love through God's gift Propitiation isn't about our sacrifice, it's about his. It's not about our gift, it's about his. It's not about our love, it's about his. John says so much later in his letter, in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. He writes, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. is the love of God to send propitiation. So this love of God the Father and of God the Son are working together in one accord toward this propitiation to remove his wrath. Which means we shouldn't think about Jesus as the sort of good cop in the New Testament who's, who's taking away the, the bad cop wrath of the old, God of the Old Testament. No, the Father and the Son are two persons who are part of one God. One God in total union. So where the Father has wrath, the Son has wrath. Where the Father has love, the Son has love. They have always been consistent and together throughout all time. So it was God's plan from even way back to Adam's very first sin that he wouldn't just shrug off anger as if sin didn't matter that much, but that he was going to avert his anger of sin by putting it on Jesus by setting his wrath on his own self, his own son, as a propitiation. Now, let me wrap this up to the end here. If you don't remember or ever speak the word propitiation ever again after this, that's okay. But we want at least to carry the idea, the notion behind it, because doctrines like this are not just interesting trivia or a little FYI that the preacher talked about once. And doctrine really impacts how we live. John has actually told us a certain context in which we're to draw this into our world. He says, hey, I've written so that you won't sin. You should steer clear of it. It's bad for you. It'll kill you. I write so that you won't sin, but 
if anyone does sin, I want you to know this. Whenever you do sin, I want you to know this. In particular, when you sin, I need you to take out the knowledge of propitiation. Pull it out of your mind and hold it in your hands. And when you feel the weight of particular sin in your life, the burden of particular sins that cling so closely, hold propitiation. We need to see that God takes that sin very seriously. It is something that rightly angers him. And at the same time, we need to see how God has averted that anger permanently by the loving gift of his own son, Jesus. Let that be a place of rest for you. Too many of us try to appease God of his anger, but if we really take this to heart, we can just stop. Stop trying to not make him mad. And instead, know that Jesus has done that for you. So I can just bow before him and say, thank you. Pray with me. Lord, would you press the truth of this upon our minds and hearts? We thank you for the great gift of the sacrifice of Jesus, help us to trust you, trusting what you have done and not trusting in ourselves. Would you deliver us from evil? But whenever we sin, would you help us to look to Jesus, our propitiation, and to find peace there? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.